Good morning, Facebook family. Good morning, Garden family. I just want to say happy triumphal entry day. Um, this is the anniversary of the day when we celebrate uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the eve of his Passion Week. It's actually one of my favorite times of the year. Um, although present circumstances, <laughs> I'm not exactly enjoying the present circumstances that we're in with the COVID-19 crisis and pandemic and um, us having to be isolated and separated from one another at this time, particularly not just Triumphal Entry, which we're celebrating today, but also this coming weekend um, with Easter. I'm not sure if many of you have heard, but um, the president did release an announcement saying that the the shelter in place or that the uh, social distancing will continue through the end of April. So as the Garden Church, we will continue our church service in this online only format until May um, and perhaps longer depending upon what the government um, issues and what they have to say about the situation. But with that being said, I would like again to say happy triumphal entry day, happy celebration of the week of Christ's passion, um, a lot of his best teachings, a lot of um, the amazing things that we read in the scripture, such as the anointing at Bethany, um, the prayer in Getsemane, the uh, Jesus being arrested, the trial, the standing before Pontius Pilate, many of those things took place this week. Um, so we get to celebrate all of that, and it's going to be wonderful. Um, so another thing that we're celebrating today is it's Faith and My one-year anniversary of being pastors in Mississippi. Um, as you guys know, uh, we started April 1st of 2019, so we kind of did a little post earlier in the week showing, hey, we've been down here for a year, but Triumphal Entry was my first Sunday preaching in this church as a pastor, and so we get to celebrate that. Um, I'd love to be able to be here with everybody and uh, be touching and grabbing and holding and loving and just, you know, having a great time. But unfortunately, with the circumstances, we can't do that. Um, but we have had a wonderful year. Uh, last year at this time, I preached a message on the hope. Um, and I preached that the only true hope was in having a biblically based understanding of Jesus Christ. And I had no idea how relevant that was going to be to our ministry here. We've endured quite a bit. Um, this church has endured quite a bit since we've been down here in this past year. Um, not even just we've had some people die that was in our congregation, you know, We've had people that we've loved. Um, they've felt called to go to church elsewhere. We've endured a hurricane. Um, and now we're enduring a global pandemic. So we have to have hope. <laughs> and so I didn't realize that that message of hope in Christ Jesus was going to kind of set the tone and be something that I myself personally continually come back to is, okay, Lord, what, what's going on? And I always come right back to, our hope is in Jesus alone. Our hope's not in the circumstances. Our hope's not in our trials. Our hope's not in what we can see in the natural, but our hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So it's always good when we get in those situations of despair to go back to hope. And I feel like this message of hope, um, I'm going to preach the same message in a sense, but I am going to preach in a little, a little bit different. Um, I feel like a message of hope in our circumstance and in our light is probably the best thing that we could have right now. Um, people in the world can't be guaranteed of tomorrow, but we have the ability to be guaranteed for all of eternity in Christ Jesus. And so we have a hope that the rest of the world doesn't have. And I feel like at this time it would be prevalent for us to rest in that hope, to find solid 
peace in that hope. And so that's what we're going to kind of preach on today. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians 2. Um, we're going to start in verse 8. We're going to do verse 8 through 10 in Ephesians chapter 2. And while you're getting there, I just kind of want to ask a few questions. You know, um, what is hope? You know, the Bible says that hope is the, um, well, it actually says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so when you look, okay, so faith is the claiming or the grabbing on to hope, and hope is that expectation, that joyful expectation of something that is not yet realized. Because if you've, it's realized, then it's no longer hope. So hope is something off in the distance that has not yet been fully realized or fully manifested or fully reciprocated in your life. And so when we take our faith and we put our faith in hope, then what we're saying is that hope hasn't been realized yet, but our faith makes it real to us now. And so that's kind of what I want to, want to go off of is if we're looking at hope and we're looking at hope in Christ Jesus, why do we say that we have hope in Jesus. The Bible says that Christ Jesus in us is the hope of glory. But why is there hope in Christ Jesus? Because I, Faith and I were having a conversation and she actually said, you know, one of the things that I tell people when you know, I lead them to the Lord. I'm honest with them. You have a lot of people that will say a sinner's prayer and will lead you to the Lord, and they're going to kind of almost make it seem like Christianity is the best life now or the best life that you'll ever have. And that's true in a sense. But what the they leave out is Christianity is also probably the most difficult route to go. It's the true route, and it's the best route, and it's the only route that provides peace and assurance for all of eternity. But Christianity is the most difficult thing in the entire world. There's nothing more difficult than being a Christian in a fallen world. Nothing. And so if we're saying that we have hope in Christ, is that hope for this life? Or is that hope for eternity? Or is it for both? And we could say in the one sense that it's for both because we know that there are promises of God available to us now. And that there's eternity waiting. But we also know that Paul says things like, All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And Christ says that they persecuted me. And he, later he says, If they called me a devil, what are they going to do to you? The servant's not above his master. So if the world hated him, then we know the world's supposed to hate us. So is that really a hope that we have? That in this world we're going to have a peaceful, joyful, amazing, pleasant life? No, we're going to have struggles, we're going to have persecutions, we're going to have afflictions, we're going to have trials and tribulations and all of those things. But why do we say that we have hope in Christ if we know that in this life we're going to face all of this negative? Why do we know that we have hope in this life? It's because God has given us the earnest of His Spirit, or which in our culture would be better translated, God has given us the down payment of His Spirit. Spirit. If you're in real estate, when someone gives earnest money towards a house, they give money down towards a house to show that they're going through this process and the house is going to be taken off the market or be put on pending status because someone has already expressed interest. And it's an interest that goes above just a face value, oh, that's a pretty house interest. It's an interest, okay, I want to buy this, so I'm going to put money down on this to show my interest is real. 
God has given us the earnest of his Holy Spirit to show that the salvation that we have for all of eternity, it's not just a passing whimsical promise that he's set forth that may or may not come true, but he's given us the earnest of his Spirit to show that that promise is solid, that that promise is real, that it's actual. So in that earnest or in that down payment of the Spirit, we have hope. Let's read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We'll, uh, we'll get back to that conversation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this. I love this passage. I was actually talking to Faith yesterday, and I asked her this question. I said, Faith, I said, if you could pick one verse or one passage in all of Scripture that gave you assurance as a Christian, what passage would you pick? And she told me that she would pick the verse that went along with her namesake. Her name's Faith Ann. Ann means grace, so faith, grace. And this is the verses that she was named after. So she said, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Is, that's the verses that I would pick as the most assuring verses of my Christian walk. And I laughed because those were the verses that I'd already planned to be preaching on. I hadn't studied them out and prepared a message or anything like that. But I had already had in my heart that those were the verses I was going to use to preach from. And so we began talking about you know, the assurance found in these verses. And the thing that I love about this is, you know, you guys know me, I'm pretty severe sometimes. I preach holiness, I preach works, I preach repentance from dead works back into faith because the only way that you can have hope is in Christ Jesus. You can't have hope outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, you're dead in sin and without God and without hope in the world. But in Christ, if you repent and believe and receive the gospel, if you can receive the gospel and you repent and believe, then in Christ you have hope. I always preach holiness. I always preach repentance. But that kind of sometimes skews how much I advocate grace. Some people kind of get a skewed mindset of how I really think of grace. And I want to share with you guys my heart in this. That you are saved because God gifted you that. You have grace because God gifted you that. You have faith because God gifted you that. You are saved by grace through faith it is a gift of God, not of yourselves, not of works, so that no one can boast. Now, does that mean that we just live our life however we want? No. I mean, you can read that it goes, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God's prepared the good works beforehand that we should walk in those good works. But those good works are not what saves you. Those good works are a fruit of being saved, but they are not what saved you. What saved you is the grace of God through faith placed in Christ Jesus. That's what saves you. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift of God, and I can't stress that enough. And there's going to be some people that are going to watch this and say that I'm an antinomian and that I believe that you can do whatever you want, however you want, and that's fine if that's what they want to believe, but that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that your salvation is nothing less than a work of the grace of God. It's a gift from God to you that you receive by grace through faith. It's a gift. And this should be the most comforting thing in the world to us because if salvation is a gift that you didn't have to earn, then that means that you're keeping it the same way. Let me explain. It says here that so that no one can boast. 
And at first it's like, oh man, you can't brag on how good your life is or how faithfully you adhere to the commandments of God. It takes the boasting out because you didn't earn your salvation by merits. You didn't earn your salvation by the things that you did, by actively seeking after God. You didn't earn your salvation by any of those things. It was a gift of God. But if the boasting is taken out, then the doubt has to go too. That's why we can have hope. That's how we can have assurance. Because if the boasting has to go, then the doubt should go too. Let me explain a little bit further. If I cannot boast in the fact that I didn't earn my salvation by my works, then I cannot doubt that my works were not good enough. Does that make sense? If I can't boast and say my works were good enough for me to ascend to God and get saved, I also, on the opposite end of the spectrum, can't doubt and say, well, my works just aren't good enough for me to be saved. Does that make sense? If you can't boast in how good your works are, then you shouldn't be able to doubt in how bad they are. Now, I'm not giving you a license to sin. People don't need a license to sin. They sin without a license all the time. What I am saying is that if you confess Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you are saved. The Bible says that all that call upon the name of the Lord are saved. So if you believe those things and you've received those things, then you receive them not because your works were so meritorious and so fantastic that you just ascended to the throne of God and grabbed a hold of that salvation and said, it's mine but rather God condescended to your lowest state and brought that salvation as a gift in the form of Christ Jesus and gave it to you. And if your works weren't good enough to get you up there, your works aren't not good enough to keep you from receiving it. If that makes sense. I know I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but I really want you to get a hold of this. Because in this time where everything else is forcing doubt in on you, where everything else is forcing and trying to push you down and get you to doubt your tomorrow, in a world where we look and we say, how can I have hope when I don't know what my government's about to do? How can I have hope when I don't know how long I'm going to be quarantined in my house? How can I have hope when I go to the grocery store and the shelves are empty? How can I have hope when I don't know if I'm going to have enough gas in my car? How can I have hope when my bills are coming due? I need to buy food. I can't find it, but I need to buy it. But yet my income is severely depleted because I'm not allowed to go to work or because my particular business was deemed non-essential and so now I have no income and my bank account's running low. How can I have hope in those things? And the answer is the grace of God. The covenant promises of God available in Christ Jesus. And in a world that's forcing you to have no hope, we really need to press into this specific area of Christianity, the area that has an undeniable, unbelievable amount of hope and assurance for us. We really need to press into that particular area because if we can truly press into that area of hope, if we can truly press in, then when all the circumstances, the world can be burning around us and we can walk with a smile on our face knowing that God is for us. And the word says that if God is for us, then who can be against us? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again and is seated at the right hand of the Father that forever maketh intercession for us. If we believe in Jesus Christ, who he is, then we should be able to have hope even when everything else is so uncertain. And so I want you to understand as far as your salvation goes, 
Because all of these promises are available to those that are in Christ Jesus. So now I want to convince you that if you can believe and you can confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, if you can believe those things, then you're saved. And I want you to understand that if you're saved and if you're transformed by the grace of God, that you did not earn it, you did not deserve it, it was a gift from God. And if you did not earn it and you did not deserve it, on the one hand, you can't brag about getting it because it was a gift. But on the other hand, you shouldn't doubt that you have it because it was a gift. It would be the equivalent of me buying my son, Asher Judah, a present and me giving him the present and him opening it up so excited and he's so ready because he's got a present. And it would be like, oh, well, I really wasn't good enough to get this present. Christmas morning when every kid is so excited to open all of their presents and they're opening them up and then they just put their presents down and they say, well, I really didn't deserve this because I didn't clean my room yesterday. I really didn't deserve this because I kind of was disobedient or maybe I back talked my mom the day before or a couple days before. It's like that whole Santa's list, the naughty and the nice comparison there. But this is nothing like that. This is a gift freely given that a child, even a child can receive and open up. And it's not about how good you were yesterday or how bad you were yesterday or even how good you were this morning or how bad you were this morning. Maybe you woke up this morning and, you know, you're not running and scrambling to get to church. So this uh, little parable is not as good as it could be if you were all sitting here. But you're maybe you were running and you were scrambling around trying to get breakfast so that you could get your family and you could sit down and you could watch a live stream. And maybe you fussed at your spouse. Maybe you yelled at your kid. Maybe you stubbed your toe and you said a word that you shouldn't. The list goes on, but maybe you did some things that you regret and that made you feel guilty. And now you're sitting there like, well, am I even saved? Because there are teachers out there that will teach that every time you sin, you need to go and get saved again. And that is complete foolishness in my opinion because the Bible says that if you believe and that you receive, then you're saved by grace. And if you're saved by grace, then it only stands to reason that that salvation is also maintained by grace. If you can't boast in it, then you shouldn't be able to deny it. If you can't brag because you earned it, then you shouldn't be able to doubt and deny that maybe you weren't good enough to receive it. Because of course you weren't good enough to receive it. You were never good enough to receive anything from God. We weren't good enough for Christ Jesus to come and to take our sin upon himself and to die upon the cross, but that's what he did. That's what we're celebrating this coming week is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the substitution. You weren't good enough for God to do that, but he did it because of his desire towards you. He did it because of grace. He did it because of love. He did it because of mercy. And it wasn't about works. It was all about God's grace for his children. It was all about God's grace. And that grace was extended even when we were enemies. If you go back up and read the verses prior to this, it says that when you were dead in trespasses and sins, God sought you out. When you were his enemy, God loved you. It was God, but God, who is rich in mercy with his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were enemies, has quickened us together with Christ Jesus. It's all about grace. Now I want you to turn over to Galatians 3, verse 1. I've got the verses written there in the comments, but I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. I want to prove my point 
That if you're saved by grace through faith, then that salvation is maintained by grace through faith. It's not maintained by your works. Your works are important. Your works show that you've been transformed by God. Your works show your love for God. They show that there's a work of faith inside you, but your works do not save you and they do not maintain your salvation. Let me show you. Galatians 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. So he starts off with the reprimand. Who has bewitched you or deceived you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Meaning that we came and we publicly preached and showed you the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing of faith? And this goes back to the Ephesians passage. Did you receive the Spirit of God, i.e. were you saved by your works and by your adherence to the law and to the legal system of God, or was it by the hearing of faith? Was it by grace through faith? And he answers the question. He says, are you so foolish? Should this even be a real question, essentially? Having begun by the Spirit. So he answers his own question. He says, having begun by the Spirit. So he asks, did you begin by the Spirit or by the works of the law? And then he answers his own question and says, having begun by the Spirit. So of course you began this whole process by grace through faith and you received it through the Spirit. By grace through faith, it's appropriated by the Spirit of God, but it's by grace. It wasn't by your works and your adherence to the law. It wasn't by your merits. It was all by grace through faith. It was a gift. Are you now perfected by the flesh? Are you now perfected or being perfected by the flesh? Meaning, are you who was saved by grace through faith, are you now maintaining that salvation by the works of the flesh? Are you maturing and becoming a better Christian by the works of the flesh? Are you becoming and maintaining your salvation by the things that you do, by the things that you choose to do? Is that what's saving you or keeping you safe? You were saved by the grace of God through faith. It was a gift, but it's now suddenly maintained by your works. It's either maintained by the grace of God or it's maintained by your works. There is no in-between. It's one or the other. It's not a mixture. It's one or the other. You're maintained by the grace of God or you're maintained by your works. And what he's asking here is he's saying, is that should that even be a question? Are you that foolish? Are we that foolish? Because sometimes even myself I get into that thing where I'm like, you know, you're going and you're going and you're going and you're like, man, I haven't really read enough at all this week. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't evangelized to anyone. I haven't really studied the way that I should to preach a message before a congregation of people. I am failing on all counts. I've been mean to my wife, or maybe I've been mean to my children, or maybe I haven't been mean, but I've just been negligent. Maybe I've just been selfish. Maybe I've been grumpy this week. I mean, we're all human, so we all have those failures and those opportunities for growth. But maybe you're sitting there and you're like, all of my works are sitting here beating against me and weighing in on me. And I'm like, I don't even know if I'm saved anymore because I'm not acting anything like a Christian should act. It's been three days since I prayed. I'm not saying that for me personally. I prayed just before this video. But what I am saying is maybe some of you are thinking about the last time that you actually got before God and prayed. You're like, man, it's been three or four days. And then you go back and you're like, okay, when was the last time I opened up my Bible? Oh, it was last Sunday when I was watching that live stream. Or maybe I missed that live stream and it was the Sunday before. And it's like, so it's been a week or two before you've actually, since you've actually opened your Bible. It's been a few days since you actually prayed. You're like, man, I don't even feel like a Christian. Am I really saved? 
And we start asking ourselves those questions and the devil starts pouring those questions through our mind and we're like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm a Christian. And essentially that's what I want to say to you and I want to say it in love. But that's foolishness. If you were saved by the grace of God and it was a gift of God and you receive it through the faith that was also a gift. So everything about it, it's not of works. That you have no boasting about it. You did nothing but receive it. Then how are you going to say that you have to maintain it by your works? No. It's maintained by the grace of God. You were saved by grace through faith. And your salvation is maintained by grace through faith. Let's keep reading. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And this is the thing that I want you to understand is that your belief in God is accounted as a work of righteousness. It's a belief in God that's attributed to you as righteousness. It's not that you are suddenly making yourself righteous. Okay, God saved me. He had mercy on me. Now I can't make another mistake or I have to go back to God and God has to re-save me. No, you make a mistake, you apologize, you ask for forgiveness and you move on. But that's not what's maintaining your salvation. That's just an appropriate response to the salvation that's already been given and maintained entirely by grace. Go to Philippians 1. It's just on the other side of Ephesians. You've got Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. So we turn back to the left. Now we're going to go back to the right. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And here's the verse that I want to focus on. And I am sure of this. That he, Christ Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God, that began this good work, this gift, that gave you salvation through grace by faith, that all you did was receive it. He gave it to you. He's maintaining it by grace. And he's going to bring it to completion. Paul says, I am sure of this, that the salvation that was began in you, that the works that were began in you, are going to be maintained and completed at the day of Jesus Christ, at the judgment day, by the same one that began it. And so the question then looms, well, who began it? I went ahead and I told you Christ Jesus there, but I want to prove it to you. In Hebrews, and I didn't put this scripture in the comments, but it's Hebrews chapter 12, I believe. Yep, Hebrews chapter 12, it's going to be verse 2. You don't have to turn there. You can just write it down. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder of and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus, some translations say the author and finisher of our faith, and I like the author and finisher better, because it literally shows that he constructed it and he finishes it. The founder and perfecter is a good translation because it says he laid the foundation, then he matures it and brings it to completion, but the author and finisher literally shows the beginning and the end. 
And so what I want you to understand is that the assurance that you should have is that if you can confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and it was a substitution for you. And you don't even have to know all the theological terms. All you have to know is that God sent Jesus Christ in the form of a man who died on a cross and then the Lord raised him from the dead and he did so for your substitution, for your sin, for your penalty. If you can believe that, if you have the ability to confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. He is the Son of God. He is my Savior. And you can believe that in your heart, then you are saved and if you're saved, then it's a gift of grace by God. And if you are saved and you can confess that, that gift is maintained by the same grace that gave it to you. And if it's maintained by the same grace that gave it to you, then it's going to be finished and completed by the same grace that maintains it and that was originally the grace responsible for giving it to you. It's all about the grace of Jesus. It's not about our works. It's not about our flesh. It's not about us being able to boast and to brag in these things. It's all about Jesus. It goes back to that every single time. We make this religion so man-centered and so man-oriented and we think that we've got to be the smartest and we've got to know the most facts and we've got to understand so much to be a good Christian and we've got to do so many good works a day. Those are well and good in their place. It's not a sin to have knowledge. It's not a sin to have good works. It's not a sin to want to evangelize. Those are all things that are commanded and given and described and decreed by God for us to accomplish. But what is a sin is to begin to think that your works have done it. Paul says in Galatians 2, the chapter preceding what we read, the immediate verse, verses prior to that, he says, For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, that the life that I now live, I live through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But the verse after that that no one really remembers is, If righteousness came by the law, Christ died in vain. It actually says, I dare not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness can come by the law, or by the works of the flesh, then Christ died for no reason. So what he's saying is that if it were possible for you to earn your salvation, if it were possible for you to ascend to the throne of God and be so perfect in your faith and so perfect in your works that you would be worthy of salvation or deserving of salvation, if that was possible, then Christ died for absolutely no reason. And then that's when he goes on to say, who has bewitched you or who has deceived you into thinking that you were began by the Spirit and now you're perfected by the flesh? Because if Christ had to die, if he had to die, it's because we weren't capable of earning our salvation. And if we weren't capable of earning our salvation, which caused Christ to have to die so that we might be made righteous in God's sight, for we know that verse from 2 Corinthians that I love so much. It says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. It's essentially saying that he came to take our sins upon him and be our substitution because it was impossible for us with the baggage and the weight and the burden of sin that we had it was impossible for us to ever do it ourselves. So he had to come and take that away from us so that we could be saved. 
And if he had to come in the first place and take that away from us so that we could be saved, then how dare we think that now because he took away that original weight of sin, that sin that's in our nature from the fall of Adam, if he had to take that away, how dare we get so prideful and thinking, okay, well, he took away the original sin, and now in my flesh, I have the ability to live a good enough life to where I don't have to be saved by grace. No, you have to be saved by grace because that's the only way. There's no other way to be saved by grace through faith. That's it. That's the only option. There is no other way. There is no other method. It's by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And that's what sets Christianity apart. And I hate it when we get so caught up and I'm guilty of it because I'm so passionate and so zealous for evangelism and for good works and for the kingdom of God. So sometimes I get slip off into that side and I'm getting kind of almost a works-based mentality and I have to have God reel me back and bring me back to grace because the only thing that sets our religion or our belief apart from the rest of the world is grace. Every other religion is about people climbing a mountain and working their way up to God and trying to get good enough or trying to get live a good enough life to reach a state of nirvana or a state of peace or a state of everlasting content. Every other belief system is about working towards a goal and it's all man-centered. Christianity is different because it takes man out of the equation and it becomes Christ-centered and it's God descending to man, bringing that gift of salvation, that gift of good enough to man. And it's all a gift. It's all given by God freely. God gave Christ Jesus freely. We didn't even ask for it. We didn't even know that we were needing of it. The Bible says that no one sought God at any time. We were all turned away. We were all led astray. But God, in His plan of atonement, constructed and created the whole plan of atonement before man ever existed, knowing that the fall would happen. It was Christ was slain before the foundation of the earth. All of this is laboring the same point, that salvation is a gift. And if it was a gift to begin with, then it's a gift to the end. You receive salvation freely, through grace. It's maintained freely through grace and it's completed freely through grace. So stop allowing yourself to be so conscious of your sin and so focused of your shortcomings and so condemning on your failures. If you fall, if you fail, if you falter, congratulations, you're human. Do we strive for perfection? Yes, but we know we'll never make it. Do we strive to come to completion? Yes, but we know that it is a work of God and will only be completed and made perfect in that day. That's why it says that He will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Not before the day of Jesus Christ, but at the day of Jesus Christ, it will be completed. So right now we have the earnest of the Spirit. We, the Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit that I am saved. And I pray and I plead that you just find hope in your salvation because the rest of the world isn't going to give you hope. The rest of the world isn't going to give you peace. The rest of the world isn't going to give you assurance. And if you don't have this foundation of peace and assurance and rest in the salvation of God being brought to you as a gift, maintained as a gift, and completed as a gift, and it's completely not of you. If you don't have that, then every single wind and wave and trial and persecution is just going to pull you and throw you wherever the world is going. 
If you don't have that, then Corona could scare you half to death. If you don't have that, then this global pandemic and the, the shelves being empty, you'll be concerned. But if you know that you are in covenant with God, then you can claim these covenant promises that he's Jehovah Jireh, he's my provider, and he's going to provide for me. The provision that he brings may not look like the provision that I hope it would be, but he's never going to fail me. Jesus says that he'll be with you always, even unto the end of the age. We have hope in Christ because of the covenant that he's established with his people. So don't doubt the foundation of that covenant. Don't doubt the very salvation. The devil wants you unsure and uncertain because it chips away at your faith and it hardens your heart and it works to where you end up doubting whether or not you're a Christian at all and then you find Christianity to be too difficult because it is difficult. But if we know that the entire scheme of Christianity is a gift of God that we were completely undeserving of and that it's maintained and completed by that same gift, if we can understand that, then when we face these various trials and afflictions, then we can count them joy because we know that the grace of God is working in us a peculiar and an eternal weight of glory. But it's only because of the covenant that we have in Christ Jesus. And it's only because it all started with a gift from God. It was started by grace through faith. It was maintained by grace through faith. And it will be completed by grace through faith. So just because you slip up, don't dare doubt your salvation. Just because you slip up, don't dare doubt whether or not you're now an enemy of God again. Just because you slip up and you fall short, don't let your mistakes define you. Peter we all think of Peter of the wondrous things that he did. But we have to come back to that perspective. Peter was the chief disciple. Peter preached Pentecost at the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. But before that, Peter denied Jesus three times. Even cursed and said curses upon himself to deny Jesus. And before that, he cut off a man's ear with a sword trying to defend Jesus with violence. And before that, he tried to convince Jesus not to give his life as our Savior, not knowing what he was saying. And Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. And before that, he said, man, it's good that we're here up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Let us build three temples, one for you and Moses and Elijah, because he didn't realize the true nature of the Messiah and the true nature of Christ. So his hope was in Jesus, but his hope was all kinds of skewed. And even after the resurrection, he's still asking, will you at this time restore your earthly kingdom of Jerusalem? The reason I say all that about Peter is because he made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake, so much so that when Jesus rose from the dead and he tells Mary and the other women, and he says, go get my disciples, he doesn't just say, go get my disciples, but he says, go get my disciples and Peter. And to me, that communicates that Peter had already disassociated himself. Probably no doubt because of his denials, but he had already disassociated himself from the disciples. He had already taken and disqualified himself because of his failures. But God, who is rich in mercy with his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were enemies, has quickened himself, us together with himself. Jesus takes Peter aside on the beachside breakfast and he sits him down and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? 
Do you love me? And to me, there was three questions to restore Peter's three denials because Peter had three chances to admonish his love for Jesus where he had denied it three times prior. And to me, that just works to show that Peter was never disqualified in the mind of God. Peter was disqualified in his own mind. Maybe he was even disqualified by the other disciples. Maybe the other disciples had heard about his denials and was like, you're not one of us. But he was never disqualified in the mind of God because the one that began the good work in him maintained the good work in him and was going to complete the good work in him. And the same is true for you and the same is true for me. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, if you've repented of your sin and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and I say the word accepted very, very loosely. I don't believe that it's all about acceptance. Jesus is Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not. What I ask for and what I seek and what I feel like the biblical definition of that is, is repent and surrender. You repent to Jesus Christ of your sins and confess them before Jesus Christ and you surrender to His Lordship. If you've done that, that's the reception of the work of God. If you've done that, then you are saved. And that salvation was a gift. And it's going to be maintained by that same grace that gave it to you in the first place. And it'll be completed by that same grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for an opportunity to preach assurance and to preach hope. And Lord, I probably didn't preach it in the best manner possible. And I may have said some things and been confusing at times. But Lord, I know that you will speak through those that yield themselves as vessels. So God, I pray that whatever words were spoken, I pray that they were received. And I pray that they were mentally processed and understood by everyone who watches this video or listens to this audio. And I pray, God, that not only is it received in the mind, but I pray that it's received in the heart and I pray that it makes such an impact in their life that it can be taken and applied and that they can rest in the peace that you give in the hope that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, your word says that you give us peace, but the peace that you give is not as the world gives. The peace that you give is an everlasting and an eternal peace, a peace that when the rest of the world is falling and when chaos is all around, we can stand strong in the word of God, because while all of those things will pass, even this world will pass, your word will stand forever. God, regardless of whatever happens with this global pandemic, regardless of what tomorrow looks like or two weeks from now look like, I know that you still sit on the throne and you are still the sovereign Lord of the universe. And I find great comfort and assurance in the fact that you have me in the palm of your hand. And the word says that those that sit in your hand, no one can take out. So God, we know confidently that we are saved and we rest in that salvation that was given through grace by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.